Welcome back to the STEM Blazers podcast. As always, I am so excited to be here with an awesome new guest, Megan Caruso. Megan is a graduate student at CU Boulder working towards her PhD in computer science. For her research, she studies the intersection between computer science and cognitive science. Megan has also been a supporter of STEM Blazers in the past. She hosted an amateur boxing event where competitors raised money for their nonprofits of their choice, and Megan fought for STEM Blazers. So we are so excited to learn more about you, Megan. Uh, Welcome, and how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great this evening. How about you? Good. I am so glad to have you here, and I'm so excited to have a conversation with you. Yeah, me too. So uh, to start us off, can you tell us um, kind of your day-to-day, and what's that like being a graduate student, specifically uh, a comp sci one, a computer science student? Yeah, the day-to-day of a graduate student can always vary a lot because every graduate student has such a different path. And I think that's one of the great aspects of being a grad student. You have to balance, like I take a lot of classes, and so you balance the classwork with the research work. And for me, that might mean two to three classes. So half my hours go towards studying for those, and the other half goes towards the research projects that I pursue. And even those are constantly changing because you might work on idea, write about it, then move on to another idea. So between different classes and different research projects, one month can be, I can be learning very different things the next month. And I really like that aspect. I'm a CS student, so I do take, a lot of my classes are coding, um, reading about algorithms, but I get to take cognitive science classes as well. And those can be pure discussion on how people think and why they think that way. And combining those two and having that balance in classwork is one of the reasons I really like this program. And my, in my research work as well, I might be doing coding for my research work one day and then reading about models of eye movement or cognitive models the next day. That sounds really interesting. So I think a, a balance between... Um, like hours in class and then studying outside of class sounds really important. And then doing a lot of variety of projects also sounds really interesting. What is cognitive science? I know you've mentioned that, um, but I I guess I don't know what it is. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably don't either. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, And I'm afraid that I'm going to define it not towards the textbook term. (laughs) That's the interesting thing. I don't have a computer science background or a cognitive science background going into this program. To me, cognitive science is the study of cognition, which is another general term, but the study of how people think and process information. So it's very related to neuroscience. Okay. But to me, when you combine that with computer science, you're trying to use algorithms and code to really get inside that black box that is the human mind. And that's one thing that really draws me to it is we're each humans and we each have a mind, but we actually can't understand everything about how our own minds work. And that to me is very intriguing that I have this tool and I don't understand everything about why it works the way it does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's like verging on like who we are as a species. Like, what are we doing? How do we think? That sounds really cool and really interesting that you get to be a part of learning what's going on up here because most of us probably are. I I mean, I certainly don't know all of the specifics. So that's really cool, though. No one does. So you're you're good. (laughs) (laughs) We're in the we're in the majority, I guess. So um, you talked about how a lot of your teams work remotely in your program. 
can you talk about how working online as a student and a researcher, um, how that it's different from maybe working in person? And what does your team do to kind of stay productive? Yeah, that's a really good question. The flip side is I joined during COVID, so I don't I don't know what it's like without the remote. I can compare it to undergrad, but <laughs> I have a project where I actually work on remote communication in teams and we're studying how to make that better. So I keep that in mind while working remotely in my own teams, <laughs> which is Yeah, that definitely sounds helpful. <laughs> yeah, so it's a point where my research applies directly to myself and I can use it. And a lot of that is being transparent in communication, a lot of it being over various messaging systems and over Zoom and just being able to clearly explain yourself since that's the main, your main tool to um, communicate remotely. And the other side is learning and taking classes as a grad student remotely And having a good community in those cases is very important to be able to problem solve the classwork and communicate with the teacher. You have to put in that extra effort to do that when you can't go face to face. And I'm actually really excited for some in-person learning as well, but making sure I'm just as clear and transparent about my research, my ideas, collaborating with other students on classwork has been really important. Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like communication and as well as the research itself. Can you tell us a bit about more about your research? You mentioned um, something about fitness trackers and other devices that track alignment. I'm interested to know about that and like your involvement in those projects. Yeah, right now I'm on two projects. One is looking at how remote teams work together and how you might be able to increase their productivity. And one way we do that is they wear fitness trackers and we have a beacon on their desk so we can see when they're at their workstation. But the majority of the data we get is from the fitness trackers. So we might be able to see while they're working together or communicating, how do their various physiological signals align or not align? Maybe everyone's in a meeting together and we see... We don't, we don't know what the meeting's about, but we see that their heart rates all go up. That might mean there's this alignment of the team at that moment with whatever conversation they're having. We also look at how they communicate and collaborate together. And if a team is aligned, and a lot of that's through communication as well, we're all on the same page, we have the same goals, then we can be more productive. But that's so, it's much harder to maintain that over working remote for the same reason that my classwork is a little harder while while being remote. And the other project I'm on has to do with eye tracking. So a little bit like I mentioned before, the human mind is this mysterious black box that we're trying to understand. And eye movements are almost a window into cognition. So if you look somewhere, that means your attention's probably directed to that area you're looking. So if I see you reading and you pause on a really complicated word longer, I can make the assumption that you're processing that complicated word because you haven't seen it before. So can I predict how well you're comprehending this text from how your eye movements are going through the text? Okay, that sounds really interesting. And how do you how do you track eye movement? Is it just like a camera that's kind of pointed at someone's face or how does that work? Yeah, it is a camera. It's a camera that, or I guess it's more a laser. <laughs> it's a laser that bounces light off your eyes and depending on where your eyes are looking it's 
reflecting that light and the screen can pick that up. There's other methods too. There was an algorithm. Someone in my lab actually made an algorithm that can get eye movements from video. So you can see like where my face is looking and the angle of my eyes and see where they're looking on screen. So people are trying to create methods that are more like the lasers we use. You can't really use at home, but just a camera anyone could use. So you can use that on many more devices to track eye, eye movements. What other things do you track? You said heart or heart rate and then your eye movement. What other things are you looking at when you're trying to like determine productivity and stuff? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I might not have been totally clear on that. Those are two separate projects. Oh, okay. In the eye tracking study, we also use EEG. So we're really trying to create as many signals. We're trying to get as many signals as possible to be able to peer into your brain. So if you do brain signals, like EEG is electrical brain signals, we can use those with the eye movements and get an even better idea of what's going on in your brain. And then we also add another signal on top of that, which is looking at where the blood in your brain is flowing. So that's even another signal. So our hope is with these three signals, we can kind of get a guess at what's going on in your brain. And then for the other study, it is just a fitness tracker. And we look at various things such as heart rate and heart rate variability, certain levels of stress, which are some research shows is related to heart rate. And then we get some other measures that they give us. We give them questions once a day about their mood. So we can get a little bit on what's going on their day that way. And that's just daily, like multiple choice questions is a really common way to get into someone's brain that way at a random point during the day. Oh, cool. Okay. That sounds really interesting then. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about your kind of STEM path and how you got to where you are now and kind of how you first got interested in STEM when you were younger? Yeah, STEM for me as a kid was very much something I did with my sister. And so that made it very enjoyable. We would study together. And so if a class, if a math or a science class was really difficult, that became a challenge, not just to myself, but my sister and I to work together and study and solve the homework. And I think that played a really important part in feeling like STEM was both collaborative and problem solving, but never isolating. And when it got difficult, you could get through it and talk through it. And for that case, for me, that was with my sister. My mom is also a computer scientist and my dad is a geologist. And so STEM was science and math was around growing up and it was in our daily conversations. And I was really lucky in that sense. And I realized that not everybody has that opportunity because that also played a very large role in my interest in STEM. I would, <laughs> I would ask my dad to write me algebra problems for fun in, I want to say, third or fourth grade. Because to me, they were like puzzles. And so I was like, Dad, Dad, write me. <laughs> Let's do some algebra tonight. So for a couple hours, he would he would write problems and I would answer them. And so it wasn't just something I did in school. It was something that was fun and enjoyable for me and my family. I think that played a large part. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds really awesome that you had that support from like your sister and your family and your parents and everything. Did you have any other role models in your life kind of, I guess, besides like your immediate family that you think also helped you influence or helped you decide to go into STEM? 
That's a really good question. My parents normalizing STEM definitely played a large part in it. And there were a couple teachers in middle school and high school that were able to make the science classes really fun and maybe feel less like you were learning from a textbook and more like you were interacting with the world itself. And those teachers played a large role in me seeing that science was a fun class. It was something I did at home that was really fun and it was something I could do in school that was really fun. Because I'd say those were my main exposures as a kid. When I was, there wasn't necessarily social media when I was in middle school, elementary school, but I could see now that there is a lot more on social media and people that you can follow that also have an interest in STEM. So I'm really curious how that has hopefully helped people get an interest in STEM at a young age. Yeah, absolutely. Having um, those kind of teacher role models and just kind of making STEM interesting because it can really seem daunting at first. That's super important. So I'm, but you're really lucky that you had that and were able to kind of have those experiences that um, helped you along a lot. I've done some tutoring, math and science tutoring for middle schoolers and high schoolers. And I see that the you can get a large variation in how math and science is taught in school. And sometimes the pressure is just on memorization and passing a test. And so even one teacher who makes it fun and interactive and not just about passing a test can make a really big difference. Yeah, absolutely. So you've talked about how your undergraduate degree was in bioengineering. And, you know, obviously now you're doing more comp sci cognitive um, material. So that's obviously a shift. What kind of sparked that change for you and made you want to kind of shift from more biology to comp sci? Yeah, I think I've found that as long as I'm following something I'm really curious about, that I've, I'm happy. And so I try, I try and do that in my career. I originally went to bioengineering because I wanted to study people, because it's very relatable to be studying a process that's going on in your own body. I found it very, very applicable. If something's a little too theoretical, I can't necessarily relate to it. But if you're studying what's going on in the human body, it's almost as relatable as you could get. And so the reason I found bioengineering was because my senior year in high school, I liked math and I liked biology. And I Googled, what degree can you get with math and biology? And bioengineering popped up. And that's actually the reason that I pursued it. (laughs) Because the math is the problem solving aspect and the biology is the applicable aspect that I really liked. And the same goes for cognitive science and computer science. The computer science is what's allowing me to analyze the data and solve the problems. The cognitive science is the human aspect that's very relatable, what's going on in people's brains, my brain and your brain and how, how we're thinking about the world and solving problems in our head. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes perfect sense. I, I definitely understand the connection, the intersection between math and biology. I think that's a really interesting thing to look into and to learn more about. Because you're doing biomedical, you said? I'm doing biomechanical, which biomechanical. is somewhat similar to what you're talking about. So yeah, I totally get it. I think it's really cool to bring those two things together. That's funny. Is that like device design or prosthetic design, the biomechanical side of it? Yeah, that's what I want to do is do like prosthetic engineering or implant engineering, I think would be really cool to learn about. Wow, that's awesome. 
Yeah. So I'm excited to do that more in the future. <laughs> um, and when you were in college, did you kind of have to actively seek out educational or career opportunities? Or how did you find, you know, internships or experiences? And what advice would you give to young students who are kind of struggling to find exposure to a lot of different things just to see what they would be interested in? I would say don't be afraid to ask because I got my two research internships simply through asking a lot of people and emailing a lot of people at a research institute by where by my home where I would spend the summers. So even if you ask 20 people and they say no, you might just have to ask the 21st person or the 51st person, or even the 71st person, and that's okay. Because if you give up on asking, then that's the one thing that'll guarantee that you don't find it. And it can be a little daunting. And so you have to you have to be okay with those 50 people that say no in order to get the 51st person that says yes. And that's completely fine. The older I get, the more I realize that it's not just them not wanting me in their lab, maybe. It's just where they're at in the research. They don't need somebody right now. It's not anything you take personally. It just at that time won't work. And that's completely fine. Um, so yeah, never be afraid to ask. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds like perseverance and patience are key to probably anything. I mean, no different in this case. So I think that's really good advice. And even though it's probably hard to get rejected, you know, 50 or 20 times or whatever, obviously, that's not fun. And no one wants to do that. But I think it um, it's definitely worth it in the end, you know, if you get those opportunities that you want to, to have those internships and stuff. So I think that's really good advice. Yeah, and being open to just seeing an opportunity and listening to yourself when you, even that little voice in your head that says, hey, that might be really fun, or I should just try, instead of listening to the other voice that might say, oh, that could be hard, what if they say no? So you just have to make sure, listen to the nice voice instead of the not nice voice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And I think we're going to take um, a short break here. So thank you, Megan, for answering those first few questions. And we will be right back. Hi, it's Wendy. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast. If you follow Stimblazers on social media, you know that registration for our sixth annual golf tournament is in full swing. If you are in the area and would like to join us on July 28th, at the beautiful Arrowhead Golf Course in Colorado, please visit us at our website at stemblazers.org. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast and a big thank you to BCER for being this week's episode sponsor. BCER is a mechanical, electrical, and life safety engineering consulting firm. To learn more about BCER, go to B as in boy, C as in Charlie, ER.com. Now let's get you back to the conversation. Okay, so in your bio, you kind of mentioned that creativity has been kind of an undervalued skill. Can you tell us about your experiences um, in which thinking outside of the box has helped you solve a problem? Yeah, so a lot of times I've, out of pure curiosity, I've ended up in fields that I don't necessarily have as much experience in, and then you learn on the job. And so having that fresh perspective on a field for instance, I went into the microbiology pharmaceutical startup 
after college and I I hadn't taken a microbiology class before. So it was all very new to me and I was learning on the job. But the little bit of coding that we had used in undergrad, I saw could heavily benefit some of the research and some of the analysis that we were doing at that company. So I was able to draw on my past unrelated experience to solve some of the problems there because I had a different perspective Um, and just seeing the problem in a different way and being able to apply those different problem solving solutions to speed some analysis that would take a very long time originally now only took a couple hours or so. And I would say that's definitely one. I've just heard when I was tutoring kids, a lot of them needed tutoring for math and science classes, and they saw themselves as maybe the type of people who, you know, I really like art, therefore I'm not going to go into math and science. And I, I wanted to say to them, or I did say to them, like, no, we need those creative people in math and science, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. They're actually, they overlap a lot. And so if you're creative in that way, we need you even more in the math and sciences to apply that creative mind to these solutions that we have in tech and in pharmaceuticals and in almost everything. And so I wanted to change those stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having that kind of interdisciplinary experience is super important to just all kinds of things. It's like no one job requires just one skill. You know, it's all kind of a medley of things you've picked up along the way. And if you have like a variety of skills, you're better equipped to do a job, which sounds really important. Exactly. Like I like, I like doing graphic design kind of as a hobby. And when you're in industry, being able to communicate your ideas and your plan in a really simple way is key, especially if you're pitching to investors. And so I ended up doing some little infographics and slides for the company that were eventually put towards um, business slides that made it in front of the directors. And so having that little bit of artsy side made it easier to communicate what our pipeline was in that instance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like people tend to um, undervalue, you know, like art skills in STEM, but I think it's super important that you have like both of those things mixed together because like you said, you can be more effective at like doing your job and doing what needs to be done, especially if maybe other people on your team don't necessarily have those art skills, those graphic design skills that are still important despite being in a STEM career. A hundred percent. So can you tell us a little bit about your interest in boxing and kind of how it merged with your passion for inspiring young girls to pursue STEM careers? Yeah, I I also was motivated to do martial arts because my mom did martial arts. She did computer science in the 80s and she did martial arts in the 70s and 80s. So she was often the only female in most of the things that she did. And so I never I never saw either of those things as being abnormal, even though in a lot of cases I was one of the only one or two females in those rooms. But I never thought twice of it or never saw that as being a negative. And so boxing especially. Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on here, but your mom sounds really badass. So (laughs) she is really badass. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds awesome. I mean, I also do a little bit of boxing just as like a kind of stress relief thing. So I, it's really, (laughs) yeah, it's really fun to like punch something in like a safe and productive way. (laughs) Yes. A hundred percent. I would teach some martial arts and self-defense classes for, for women. And it was 
the best because sometimes no one's given the permission to say, just hit this as hard as you can. And I think everyone should get that at least once, hopefully multiple times in their life in a safe environment, obviously. Um, yeah, definitely. To kind of show yourself that you have the confidence to to do it and that you can do it. Um, it's very confidence building. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, I mean, it's just empowering. You're like, yeah, I, I did that. And then if you feel good and stuff. So I think that's really cool that you um, did the fundraiser as well, in which you fought for STEM Blazers. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose STEM Blazers and what that means to you? Yeah, I wanted to look at a local nonprofit that supported women in STEM. And the fact that STEM Blazers is in my community and helping helping build my local community around CU, where it would be great as a PhD student to see more women in these fields, um, especially in computer science classes. So it seemed like STEM Blazers was making the most direct impact of all the nonprofits and the community that it's building, the resources it's providing were exactly what I was looking for. Awesome. Well, I mean, as a STEM Blazers alumni, I love to hear that um, you think we're doing good work because I have loved being in this program and it is, it definitely inspired me to um, go into STEM, you know, at Minds and stuff. So, and it's obviously kind of hard being a woman in STEM. I mean, you definitely, it's one of those things you definitely feel when you walk into a room. Like when I, I had a comp sci class last semester and I walked in and it was mostly guys and I was like, oh, okay, like that's, that's fine, but it's something you're, you're aware of. So I think it's really important to have organizations like this that uphold women. So thank you so much for um, supporting us. So it really means a lot to us. Yeah, STEM Blazers is great. I, I feel I consider myself very lucky that I had my mom as the role model she was. And I acknowledge that not everybody has that. I just got the lucky cards in that sense. And so STEM Blazers is providing the community so that I had my sister and my mom, but STEM Blazers is providing that for a lot of women and girls in science and making it so you might walk into that room and it's all guys in your comp sci class, but you still have this community to talk to and that you're studying and all working hard towards a goal, even if that class might seem a little different environment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you cannot underestimate the importance of support systems. You know, those are absolutely crucial to doing, I mean, succeeding in school and a job in life. So in all aspects, I think it's super important. So yeah, that's very, very true. Um, I think now we're going to jump to the rapid fire round. So I'm just going to ask you um, some questions and then you just kind of give your answer as quick as you can. I'll try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. What did you want to be when you were five? I wanted to be a falconer because I loved birds. I really, really loved birds. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds really interesting. Who was your female STEM icon? I have really admired Jessica Rivera, who is an infectious disease epidemiologist. And during COVID, she's done a great job to communicate the science behind COVID and behind the pandemic in a really clear way. And I think that's changed a lot of people's minds and really affected a lot of people's understanding of the pandemic. I think she's currently now the lead of the COVID tracking project. And her ability to communicate science very clearly is extremely impressive. Yeah, I mean, she sounds impressive. And obviously, 
just important to what's going on today in our kind of modern world, even aside from like kind of historical importance. So that's really cool. She sounds awesome. What is your best life hack? My best life hack is to doodle as much as possible, even if that just means five minutes a day or maybe five minutes, three times a day. It lets your brain relax and maybe it uses the other side of your brain a little bit. And you think while you do it too. You relax and maybe think about things. It helps, it at least helps me think for sure while relaxing my brain. Yeah, definitely. Um, What is the best compliment you have ever received? Ooh, I think the best compliment I've ever received was someone did call, someone called me badass once and I felt really cool. (laughs) 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 Like even just, yeah, I felt that was pretty cool. Um, What is something that you have been wanting to learn? I've been wanting to learn more about video editing and animation. And part of that goes into, I think if you, it's essentially another way to tell stories and science communication combined with stories is a great way to get ideas out there and get facts out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned um, doing graphic design and if you, I mean, if you could create, um, you know, kind of one image infographics, that's cool. But if you could do a video and like share more information, that would be even more helpful. Exactly. Yeah. Cause stories relate and resonate with people so strongly that if you combine that with STEM, then you're, I think it's a good recipe. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can get with that. Um, and lastly, what is your favorite song? Favorite, favorite song. I really like Pride and Joy by Stevie Ray Vaughan, which is a little more of a classic, bluesy and rocky. I really like French music. So the French version of Lovey and Rose is a very calming, do relaxing song. I love that one. Um, yeah. Edith Piaf, right? Yeah. Yeah. And her No Je Ne Regrette Rien, which I definitely did not pronounce correctly, <laughs> is another one to sit down, turn the lights down and listen to. Yeah, she has a beautiful voice. She's one. I really like her too. So we will, we will add those to our mentor playlist. So um, listeners, make sure to check that out on Spotify. And um, so this is a question that we ask all of our guests, but uh, standing where you are now, what advice would you give to your high school self? I would tell my high school self to pursue projects that are of personal interest to me to learn what I like and don't like at a younger age. School is really important, but being able to identify a project, challenge yourself, work on it, even when it gets difficult, is a really good experience because you'll also learn that your passions and your curiosity are what help you stick with those projects. And you end up learning a lot that way. Um, So yeah, doing some of that outside of school while I was in high school, I would tell myself to pursue. Yeah, that's definitely um, really good advice because I know it's kind of easy to just kind of stick with school things when you're in high school because that's sometimes all you kind of have access to. But, you know, with the internet and a lot of other resources that are kind of more available now, I think it's easier to do some other things. Yeah. And it's easy to get in that mindset of school just keeps on giving you more and more to do. And so being able to break out from that and see like, well, this is also what I want to do and what I'm extra passionate about that we just happen to not be doing in school right now. Right. And I think that's definitely where a lot of personal growth comes from is like you doing what you want to do, not just what your high school teachers are telling you you should do. Yeah, definitely. Because there will be a point where eventually no one's telling you what to do anymore. And if you don't, if you don't have practice up until that point to 
try and choose what the next step is yourself, it can be a little little daunting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And now for our listeners, we have uh, the trivia question of the episode. So the question is, what is the only number that does not have a corresponding Roman numeral? And um, you can find that answer on our Instagram at STEM Blazers. So make sure to check that out. Um, and a special thank you to Megan for joining us on this episode. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Um, it's been such a pleasure. And uh, on behalf of STEM Blazers, thank you for um, sharing your story and um, giving us your time. And also, thank you so much for fundraising for us. So it's been a real honor talking to you tonight. It's been awesome. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. And then a uh, shout out to the listeners for joining us for another STEM Blazers episode. If you want more information or to stay up to date with what we're working on, make sure to check out our website, stemblazers.org or our Facebook and Instagram pages at STEM Blazers. 